G'day everyone and welcome to another Bloody Movie Podcast. I am Sean Coates. Thank you very much for listening and apologies in advance for my very exhausted and very tired voice. It's that little period where it's a few days after the Melbourne International Film Festival has just finished and I'm in that period where I just wish I was back in the cinema watching some quality cinema just daily, seeing as much as I can cram into my eyeballs as humanly possible, some amazing cinema from all all over the world, but even while doing that, I think it ended at a good time for me. Overall, I saw 45 films. That is 36 features, 8 documentaries, and 1 shorts package over the 17 days of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is crazy, but even crazier to think that I skipped out on a few sessions and could have been put and, and could have been pushing 50 films, which is absolutely insane. But Mif 2019 was an amazing year for the festival, the best of the three years that I have attended in terms of not only the films that I saw, but also just the interactions that I had. Because interactions, the social interactions is an incredibly, incredibly important part of a film festival. Because especially when you're seeing as many films as I am, like goddamn 45 films, you need to talk to people. As much as you want to be just in the cinema and, you know absorbing as much quality film as you possibly can. You need to talk about these films so you can at least retain some of them in your memory. And in that case, this year's myth was great because I got to spend time with a lot of really great people, some of which I recorded and you are about to hear their voices. So this episode is a compilation of short little conversations with people that I saw films with or just hung hung out with at the festival and just had a little conversation with them, either pre-film, post-film, or just, you know, while we're hanging out at the festival and just talking about what we've seen so far, what we're about to see, what we're planning on seeing, what we're excited for, what was good, what was bad, what we're indifferent on. A lot of really fun conversations with a bunch of really cool people in this episode. I I planned on doing this much more frequently, but as things turned out, I only did about four or five recordings, and but I'm still really happy with the ones that I did, and you are about to hear all of them, and you're going to hear this amazing little transition sound between all of them. So that is a sound I made for my sound design unit at university for a sound library that I had to do, and in per- in, that was in the science fiction sounds. Uh, that was me trying to emulate the sound of, uh, try to create the sound of a Star Trek transporter beam by flicking a wine glass and uh, overlaying that sound about five times and then adding a shit ton of reverb on it and what you just heard was the result of that, which I'm really happy with Um, and I think it's the perfect transition film as I'm basically in these series of clips teleporting from place to place, you know, interviewing a lot of really cool people who are just having the best time at the festival and talking to them about the films that they've been seeing. So without further ado, this is the first clip. Enjoy this episode, guys. Right, we are in uh, Hoyts, Melbourne Central at roughly 6pm on Monday, August 5th. I am joined by previous guest, uh, Matt Ryder for MakeTheSwitch.com and also a uh, number one fan of The Greatest Showman, as we learnt from the last episode she was on. Ashley, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Great, uh, a bit worn out from the first weekend of MIFF, but I'm feeling alright. But Ashley, tell me, you are a Melbourne-based cinephile. You've, how have you been avoiding MIFF all of these years? Honestly, I have no idea. I'd love to just blame it on uni, but I know that I'm lazy, so let's just go with that. <laughs> okay, yes, because yeah, it's strange that you haven't been here before. Yeah, this is my first year, actually. 
And how many films have you seen so far? I've seen three. Perfect. Tell us a little bit about those. Uh, you saw you ditched me to go see In Fabric. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about that because I'm, I'm interested to hear what you thought about it. Yeah, first of all, it was a mistake to ditch you. Um, it always is. Yeah. So first half of it actually was somewhat enjoyable. Like I knew that it was never going to be the most serious film ever. I was like, oh, you know, I'll have some fun with it. And then the first half finished and then our story diverged and we pretty much had a repeat and it got to the point where it was just unbearable I sat there just waiting for the scenes to end and then it would start again and I'm like oh shit we're gonna do this again are we but yeah just to interrupt there I've chosen the perfect spot to record this because now we are sitting in front of a giant projector here and now it was there was nothing playing here but now there's a bunch of trailers going on right behind us so hopefully I don't get a copyright strike for this but let's just try and talk over the music and the loud stuff that's just happening there. BTS. Yeah, good luck. Oh. <laughs> but yeah interesting you said that about In Fabric. Um, I have very, I liked it surprisingly much more than you did but I almost agree with almost exactly what you just said. Like the first half is really great. Like it is my, 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 my problem with the movie is that it didn't really steer too much into the ridiculousness and like of the like the camp like kind of 60s, 70s Euro horror that it was kind of going for. Like it does in parts, especially in the first half, but like it's not really that consistent throughout. Yeah, I think maybe for you the second half wasn't enough to derail the first half, but for me like it just left a sour taste in my mouth, like I couldn't get over it. I wish it had just been like a short film, like it's the one concept it should have just been left with the first half because the second half does nothing for it or my idea is that instead of like because if you wanted to have either stick with yeah as you said the short film where it's just the Jean-Marie Baptiste and her character which the movie painstakingly sets up so much of only to then you know leave her halfway through the film I just thought that like maybe this would have been better if you wanted to do this idea commit to it and do like an anthology horror film about this dress going from person to person through different times throughout history even. Yeah, that would have worked much better, but then I guess if you had decided to skip through different years, you might have lost some of the stylistic flair that Strickland's going for, because it feels very rooted in like 50s, 60s. So I feel like if you were to get rid of that, even though the second half did feel much more modern, maybe it was just because the actors looked more modern, but it just I feel like it would have lost its touch a little bit and the style that it's going for at least it's consistent throughout the film it just doesn't work for me very well uh, but the, the, the thing that would have like if they had structured it like that as a thing but then like they always go back to this um to this department store where the dress was sold and then because those those like witch like shopkeepers I think are like the best part of the film Hysterical. Yeah, they were definitely the best part of the film. So, again, if they were maybe immortal and they were there the whole time and they were starting to struggle with the store and that's why they kept pushing these items and maybe it would work, like, over the years. As Strickland himself said, it's about the death of retail, so it makes sense that these, like, coven style want to keep pushing their clothes. So, yeah, I do see that that would definitely work, but unfortunately that's not what we got. Yeah, it was a bit of a, like, uh, Felix Felix Brown, friend of the friend of the podcast, hopefully we'll get him on at some point, he described a film that... Uh, I saw last night Vivarium as kind of a vacuum of ideas and In Fabric is kind of that. I think he is trying to do like some kind of satire of commercialism and like, you know, of uh, I guess like consumer culture, but I don't really think it ever goes anywhere with it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And what else have you seen? Because that's the only film you've seen in the in the actual film festival like run, but you have had the opportunity to preview a couple of films via some lovely screeners that Myth have provided you and the other writers that make the switch. Yeah, thanks thanks to Make the Switch, I've been able to see Take Me Somewhere Nice, which was a Dutch coming of age film, which I did like. It 
was very minimalist in both dialogue and presentation, which I really liked. Um, but my highlight so far has been Harmony Croon's The Beach Bum, which you're nodding and I don't know if that means that you liked it or not. I don't know. I haven't seen it. No, okay. So, I think it's not that big of a secret that I'm a massive Harmony Croon fan. And I know that his work's been getting a bit more accessible over the years and therefore probably like a bit more enjoyable at surface level. And I definitely think that The Beach Bomb is his most accessible work to date. It's literally just a romp. It really, really is. It has a few narratives narrative issues that in that it tries to have a narrative at all when it looks like it's a film that really doesn't need one look i actually don't mind the narrative parts but the plot works at breakneck speed during those periods that it's not we don't really get a chance to see anyone else aside from matthew mcconaughey's character which is a little bit disheartening because there are some really interesting characters that just go unexplored which is a bit of a shame is Jonah Hill one of those characters? Because from what I've heard, he is basically just doing his Woody Harrelson impression from the fake Pineapple 2 sequel, the Pineapple Express 2 from This Is The End. Oh my God, his accent is insane, but it's hilarious. So I didn't mind, like to anyone else, it may have just been simply unbearable, but I thought it was hilarious. So even though it wasn't the most consistent thing ever, it was still at least like something fun to laugh at. Just trying to figure out whatever trailer that is, this is behind us. It's a big tree man or something. I've got no idea. But, is it? Oh, no idea. It's okay. This is all being cut out anyway. But so what? Else? So we're about to see an Australian documentary. It's actually my first Australian film of the festival. I think it's like what film, film ten or twelve for me. But um, what? So we're watching the Australian documentary in my blood. It runs. Yes, we are. Yeah, um, I just kind of went into this because uh, I was originally going to see something else and then I swapped into this in the last minute, so I don't really know what it's about. But for someone who's actually studied, but I believe it's about um, the Austra- a documentary about how the Australian government have basically kind of neglected the education of Indigenous children and it focuses on, on specific communities, I believe. And I just want to, as someone who's, you know, currently doing a Masters of Teaching, I'm interested to see how you will feel about this film and how, what your thoughts are going in. I'm actually interested to see it too. Um, I haven't done an awful lot about Indigenous studies at uni at this point, and I'm interested to see what kind of um, perspective this documentary will bring. So I think it'll be interesting to see from different perspectives, both you know from Indigenous people themselves and from what I've been taught so far, if there's any discrepancies. Uh, I'm thinking about the same, Blake. It's also, um, I went back in year 10, I'm not quite sure if I've told you this, but I am... Um, as part of a missionary trip, because Catholic school, I went to an Indigenous Australian community in uh, just about two hours north of Broome, in a town called Lombardina, and like helped out with the school there and like their community. So I'm wondering like if this documentary will, at any point, like bring up memories of that or resonate with me in some way in that form. But uh, other than that, uh, I don't know if I'm getting a chance to speak to you on the podcast again throughout this uh, festival. But what else are you seeing or looking forward to at MIF? Oh, the souvenir! I cannot wait. Um, what else am I seeing? I'm seeing The Lodge, The Art of Self-Defense. I'll try and see Pain and Glory if this um, if this issue comes back on sale, but no guarantees. But yeah, I'm going fairly light. It's just a matter of uni not being, you know, very accommodating for me watching movies. But, you know, when has it ever really been? Well, you're, you're on placement for most of the time during MIF too, which is a bit of a bummer. Yeah, unfortunately, these things just don't time out. So, you know what? At least I'm actually getting to grow this year as opposed to other years where I haven't been. So, mm, That's fantastic. And I'm glad that you get to have your first experience, MIF experience with not only me, but all your other friends from Twitter. And speaking of Twitter, if for whatever reason you aren't following Ashley on Twitter, where are you? Where can people find you? At AshMattXX. Perfect. Thank you, Ashley, for coming on. Thank you.
Okay, apologies in advance for all the background noise you're going to get here, but we're at uh, an undisclosed location. Our guest is filming and doing a uh, and getting a photo right now. I'm joined here by uh, Toby and George. How are we, gentlemen? Pretty good, thank you. Very well. I, I was meant to do these uh, little interviews a lot more frequently throughout the festival. Uh, the last one I did it was uh, last Monday. It is now the following Thursday <laughs> since I last did the last recording. So um, a lot more has happened in the festival since then. Um, but how have you guys found MIF overall? Uh, George, this is your first time, ever, or second time second ever time. attending MIF, but first time actually attending MIF like more regularly and properly. <laughs> so how have you found it so far? Really good. I am seeing an appropriate amount of films, unlike some people, that I can afford. And I have not disliked a single one yet, so I count that as a win on my part. Definitely. And out of the ones we did on, because George, you were a guest on our pre-discussion, pre, pre like, like the, the episode we did talk, discussing the preview of Myth. Yes. Is there any of the films that we discussed then that you saw that were either like really exceeded expectations or were like really deeply disappointing? I guess In Fabric, um, which I did not, I knew it wasn't going to be as good going in, but that second half was, yeah. But it was still funny. I still had a good time. It just was not as good as I hoped it would be. So now, Toby, you are the probably the biggest Strickland fan out of all of us here. <laughs> so, and you were you were a bit disappointed by Infabric too, I believe. I would like to point out Sean is getting revenge on multiple levels for, <laughs> for jokes made at his expense. So not only has he waited until I've drunk, you know, a couple of Nebbiolos. And an aged Bordeaux. Uh, he's also making sure that he gets revenge on me loving Strickland and telling him off for not loving Strickland. Uh, by, yeah, by picking on me for the worst of Strickland's oeuvre uh, so far that I've seen. Look, I, I, there, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Uh, and I love Adam to death. But there was an element to it of which I could feel the energy coming off of Adam. Adam just hating it next to me. <laughs> I love, I love you, Adam. If you're listening, <laughs> sure he is. But I, I could absolutely feel the energy coming off of him. But yes, it, it, it was certainly a movie of two halves, and unlike, unlike his prior efforts in that regard, unlike certainly Duke of Burgundy, I don't think his repetition worked as well in this case. Uh, it was certainly, you know, I, I mean, it was a more obvious. Uh, and yet at the same time less coherent sort of uh, I guess satire and look at things uh, and certainly in this regard as modern capitalism I would say to a degree certainly consumerism to a degree it was quite funny I, I enjoyed the second half more than a lot of people did and I very much enjoyed Julian Barrett of uh, Mighty Bush fame whenever he got horny over uh, that uh, <laughs> that poor mechanic talking about <laughs> what could be possibly wrong with, with washing machines <laughs> and what have you uh, but yeah, it was, I guess it wasn't fully coherent to me and it was, I guess it wasn't saying as much as I sort of hoped it would. It didn't do as much with the idea, I guess. Uh, but it was very, I enjoyed the campiness to it. I enjoyed how much it leaned into the, the humorous campiness to it. Um, probably more than a lot of people did, but yeah, it didn't come fully together for me for someone who I guess considers his last two movies a couple of the best of the decade. Well, I kind of feel the same way as you guys too and I guess even when I was saying that when I saw it as part of a screener for the Sydney Film Fest and I, I said those kind of thoughts like none of you guys seem to believe me and now you guys are all kind of in agreement with me and I think I think I actually enjoyed it more than a lot of you guys. this moment more than you love it, <laughs> trust me. But okay, so that was disappointing for you but what's been good so far? Uh, look, I, I love El Madhava in all forms uh, but... Pain and Glory was particularly special to me, is particularly special to me, and very, very personal film. Less less provocative than Amadavar's been in the past. Uh, as f big a fan of heroin as he's ever been, clearly. But, 
but uh, but very very personal film. Um, very clearly, Banderas is playing in a lot of a um, uh, analog, I guess. Uh, and I mean, even the posters, obviously, in which you've got sort of the the shadow uh, of Pedro in the background there. Uh, yeah, is very very clearly sort of referencing that. And yeah. I, beautiful beautiful effort from Banderas I know Banderas talked in interviews about uh, coming back from America to do The Skin I Live In and coming with all these tricks that he'd learned in an American time and trying them and then like day one or day two Pedro pulling him to the side and going what the fuck are you doing Antonio <laughs> oh I've learned all these tricks and I thought you'd really like it I don't <laughs> Antonio where are you I want you back and he said that uh, he said that Skin I Live In was sort of a very good lesson in learning to park his arrogance, learning to park his yeah, his ego, which is interesting because in very I think in a lot of ways Pain and Glory was Pedro parking his ego and his you know his confidence about himself, and so yeah, it played in very well. I think it was said it was a good lesson for this film, and I think it worked perfectly. It's good. it's interesting because that is the first Almodovar film I've ever seen, yeah. and now uh, I'm guessing yeah because it seems like this is a big sort of culmination of his whole work, and it's very very much like a very thinly like the thinnest of veils of a bio of like a biography film. I'm just wondering if I missed, like, and you can probably like shed some light on this. If I missed like a lot of sort of metatextual stuff with both, like I guess maybe the career of um, of Almodovar, but then maybe also is the actor that in in that film is that meant to be like a Banderas esque figure as well, or is, do you? For starters, and I've got no idea how you actually correctly pronounce his surname, and I should know. I love that you rhyme him with Matthew Delevedover, the basketball oh. player. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, is it, what is it, Al- Almodovar? Uh, Almodovar? I, I, I honestly, I, I'm not going to say who's right or wrong. I, <laughs> I'm slightly tipsy to start with, uh, and I, don't, I really don't know. I should probably know. Um, but yeah, look. There's certainly metatextual stuff in there, and he's always being metatextual to a degree. But I think, even when he's personal, his metatextual stuff isn't necessarily, isn't always with his own works. Uh, sometimes it's with other works as well. He's always referencing a lot of things. He's a very, 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 very well-read man. Uh, in fact, you know, Banderas essentially playing him has got a book in his hands of different persuasions multiple times. Um, but yeah, there he is probably going to take more than a few minutes to, to split that apart however and oh yeah <laughs> I, I promise I promise to do a longer <laughs> one with you at some stage in which I go into that more deeply but yeah with him he's always he's always playing uh, there's always sort of multiple levels in which he's playing with things um, I I've said this I said this to Harris Dang hi Harris if you're listening as well one of my favorite people in the world uh, I'm still wondering if uh, oh, Jesus Christ I've seen the film twice now and I can't remember the name of the <laughs> name of the the film within the film in there um but anyway it's uh i i haven't fully worked out whether it's a reference to one of his previous films or not or whether it's a sort of a melange of them my belief but it's nothing like the film within the film is nothing like matador my belief is that i guess it's somewhat a touch on matador in that matador is 32 33 years old so it would have been 32 years old when he made it and the film this film is 32 years old as well uh, and also Matador is famously one of the two films he felt didn't come off um, so he doesn't love it although the actor that he keeps picking on in the film for not playing the role properly in Matador would have been Antonio Banderas which makes it very very funny because it's quite possible Antonio Banderas is picking on Antonio Banderas in 32 years prior <laughs> but I don't yeah 
I think he's playing around with multiple ideas in there. I don't think it's actually a full reference to Matador, but yeah, that, that would be the closest reference, I guess, yeah. in there. And I'm sure you're going to go into more detail on this in a piece that you're going to be writing for very soon. I am. So I have I have three films that I'm writing about in this thing. I probably should have written more yesterday than I did, but I'm going to, David, uh, if you're listening, and I'm going to get your surname wrong, Cuevas. Uh, uh, David, if you're listening. Uh, yeah, so I'm writing on Pain and Glory. Uh, I'm writing on... Well, I'm going to say I'm writing on the souvenir, but it's more on Joanna Hogg in general. That piece is going to be very large. I'm <laughs> hoping by the time I finished it, David is still going to want to house it on his website because it's going to be 2,000 words plus, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to write on the floor, which could be anywhere between how, 200 words and 10,000 at this rate. Because How are you going to do that? Like That's going to be a massive undertaking, just even witnessing, like which, watching all of that film. Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know, La Flore is a 14-hour film. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Part of writing about it has been to re-watch Out One, which I only watched for the first time a few months back. <laughs> I watched it a second time. It's yeah, masterpiece, <laughs> which is a 13-hour film. Uh, and like... Uh, like LaFleur is sort of also I guess is a theatre group within a film is a yeah plays within a film is films within a film is referencing the idea of making art is making this is what I know about it I don't know much outside of that very dense text from the sounds of things yes and is going to be heavily intertextual I think and metatextual but yeah I think are we getting on this train yeah we are we are I'll just I'll pause quickly and when we get off we'll I'll just see how we go Okay, we're back again. Um, but George, um, Toby had his bit of a fair share there, and uh, you were quite waiting p- quietly and patiently there. If I um, talk. Yeah, it is. <laughs> he's, he's got a lot of good stuff to say, but you do too about one film in particular, which you and a uh, friend of the show, Claire White, um, had a bit of a, had a lot to say about, and you actually put a Facebook discussion as part of a re- review on. It's definitely a format that I was actually like, oh, what? But it's actually a really sort of unique way of, I guess appealing to like the young the the youth of i guess film discourse because i mean i talk with people about films like that just on messenger and stuff so i think it was a really interesting way of i guess putting that on yeah but the film itself and then we danced is my favorite of the festival so far i fucking loved it um (laughs) it's so gay it's so well made it's (laughs) like it's got your like like you know your romance film in there but it's also very much about this this kid who's you know changing in this world that's so you know georgia at the time and yeah. still is now is so held back by you know was it was it set in, was that did it have a period setting no, did no, it no. but like so at the time i mean like now it's so it's hard to believe that in 2019 georgia is still being yeah like you know sexuality everything is just so conservative and you know so held back and um i guess it was a big like it's a huge risk to make that film in that respect like i only think that i mean the films are being supported by its own country right now but um really has it been has it been banned in well not i don't know about banned but the director was saying on a q a like he hasn't got any support from georgia because it's a film about you know you know gay stuff like it's it's and uh you know the story focuses on georgian dance which in itself is very very traditional traditional. you know you can't you know do your own thing similar to how they're treating sexuality and it's a very unique and sort of almost like ethereal sort of like setting for it because whenever you got our main characters dancing it's, it's so fucking gorgeous to witness and um yeah the act I, i'm not gonna pronounce their names so i'm really bad at that but the on-screen uh duo are phenomenal and um 
one of them is actually spotlighting our, our our review on his Instagram page. It's really funny. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, check out the uh, best review thus far. And I'm like, oh my God, we just talked on Facebook, but thank you. Um, but no, it's, I don't, I don't want to say too much. I, I hope people could get the chance to see it outside of like, you know, festival runs, but it is a very, you know, un, like small film, but my God, it has a lot to say. And it has the two of the best soundtrack moments, surprises this year. Um, Claire and I were losing our shit when these two songs came on. So um, see it for that alone. If, you, if nothing else, just do see it for that alone. <laughs> I caught this one based on George and Claire's recommendations, a collective one. I still have not read your uh, review yet, and I will get around to that as soon as I possibly can. Um, but yeah, I, I like to point out just quickly that the one thing people aren't saying enough of in the souvenir are the needle drops. The needle drops in the souvenir are fucking fantastic. <laughs> Oh, I'm not. I'm not really a much of a music uh, connoisseur as these guys are. So, like, I'm not really into that. So, like, I didn't really get like uh, when, especially on Twitter, a lot of people like raving about the needle drop moments in, especially, and then we danced. Like, I didn't even know what they were. But like, I n- none of them. Not even that one by that famous band that everyone loves, including me. Honestly, don't remember it. But George has left the building. But um, um, no, but like I, I like this movie a lot. Uh, definitely not as much as uh, as George did. I just found like uh, it, I, it really started to lose me around the hour mark. It just got really kind of slow. And it, it was meant to be like this kind of, especially when like when they go away from like that setting, like they go camping or something on like on this like little holiday. It's st- like that's when like the relationship like gets is meant to get stronger with the. Th- with the two leads and it does like narratively it does it just I was not as invested in like that part of the film which is strange but but I understand it pacing is a very hard thing to to, like win everybody over so yeah I understand that and then you have the ending which I think is absolutely fantastic and as as you said flawless as as you said with like you know the very conservative uh, like you know state of like you know being very very homophobic kind of you know the community or like just the nation that is Georgia but then you also this very traditional dance and you have that final sequence which I would compare to like if you put the endings of both Flashdance and Whiplash together yeah yeah. that's this ending it's very intense it's very liberating and I loved it so yeah that 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 one it really won me over in the end it was a a bit of a rocky road started out great had a bit of a rocky road in the middle but like loved it not not loved it but like really loved the ending and it won me over by the end I'm glad the ending is amazing so I'm glad that that won you over but yeah love that film if you can see it if it's playing anywhere near you and then we danced go watch it because it deserves a lot of love because it's not getting any from Georgia. Yeah. So well, at, the, at, at the moment, if there's like some kind of petition or something to get this film, like like kind of like with the film, uh, the, the, a similar film kind of last year, Rafiki, which was banned in its home country. And that, that actually, I mean, now that's been on like SBS, and like has found an audience here in Australia and at other places through festivals. So hopefully maybe the same fate will happen to And Then We Dance, which would be great. I would hope so, yeah. And uh, if they, these guys, thanks, but they're, they got to run now. But uh, if... For whatever reason, you guys aren't following these two lovely gentlemen on Twitter. Where can you find them? George, you've been on the show before. You've probably plugged it. But for those people that don't remember, what is your at? You can find me at my full name, George Backless, which is K-A-P-A-K-L-I-S, and just George, which is way better to spell. Um, and then follow my production company on Twitter at Take42Prod because uh, I'm plugging stuff. Thank you. And read his review on Rough Cut. Yes, read, read our review on Rough Cut. Um, Claire and I talked and then we danced and gushed about it. I'll also be posting two more reviews uh, this week for Buoyancy and Sequin in a something or something. Blue Room. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> Which, uh, I, mean, I haven't seen the, the latter, but Buoyancy was amazing and I would definitely recommend you check that out. 
even though I don't think it's got any more showings apart from to got one tonight. One tonight, so it's pointless because this will come out after yeah. the festival. So I hope those who saw it saw it and loved it. Thank you. <laughs> awesome, and Toby. Where can people find you? Uh, I am at Key Light Blog. Key Light Blog. <laughs> all is one word, however. Although all of my writings will be going to On the Clock, I believe, <laughs> later in the week or next week, probably at this rate. Uh, so, yeah, that's me. Have a safe trip back to Adelaide. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hope you've enjoyed Melbourne's lovely film culture, and apart from Adelaide, which is just basically you and two other guys. Yeah, yeah, myself and, uh, and the wonderful Chris. Uh, or DJ Kaiser, as most of you all know him. He's a wonderful man and very well spoken, even though he doesn't believe it. Uh, and now I'm about to go to the art gallery. I think I'm going to make George go to the art gallery with me. Show me art. Even if it's just to sit there in front of the Francis Bacon and the Roscoe, which are all right next to each other. I mean, I'm already learning stuff, so I'll take this as like a valued visit. So, yeah. I've made George suffer through Rothko and Francis Bacon ramblings already, and now I'm going to make him look at the two of those art pieces. Believe it, yeah. Absolutely. All right. In, uh, to George, enjoy the rest of the festival, whatever you've got left. Toby, I hope you get through the floor. Absolutely. I will get through the floor. Three days of 14 hour cinema. Love it. <laughs> yeah, and I have to quickly run to a session right now. So, a Vi, a New Zealand film. So, it should be really, really interesting. Uh, it's like a film film about, like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about it on the next <laughs> podcast, I guess. But. So I don't know when you heal me next and who I'll be with. So until then, see you later. We're here. It's the second last day of the festival. Everyone's tired, but we're still, we're still going. I'm joined here with by George and someone who's come. Where, where have you come from for this festival? Uh, all the way from the States near Washington, D.C. So here I am. Yes, this is the famous Kern. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks for asking. It's my final day here, so I'm a little bit upset. It's a bittersweet moment, you know, heading out soon. But uh, I really enjoyed my time, so I'm happy to be here. A 20, 20, 24-25-hour flight you've got going back? Uh, yeah, 25-hour flight starting at uh, 9 p.m. tonight, so that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, and George, yourself, how have you been this festival? I'm pretty, pretty happy with this so far. Yep. What's been some of your favorites? I'd say the, the Nightingale um, Monos was pretty great, and his lost name. I'd say my. I haven't heard a lot about. I haven't heard a lot about his lost name, but from what you're saying, it actually sounds like really good, and yeah. it's one of those films that's really flown under the radar. So I'll have to. Yeah. Hopefully, if it gets it gets released, and we'll check that out. Yeah, that's right. It's very Cora Edda esque, and I yeah I enjoyed it a lot. And where's it from? Like, is it uh, what what nation or what country? Korean. A lot of good stuff coming out of Korea for this festival, especially House of Hummingbird especially was also really good. But you mentioned Monos, and uh, Kern, you were a very big fan of that one. Yeah, it was uh, definitely my favorite of the festival. Uh, I knew going in that I would really like it because I'm a big fan of uh, anything scored by Mika Levy. But uh, it kind of blew me away on top of that. I thought the first like 20 minutes were just spectacular and that there would be no way that it would keep up that you know, atmosphere. Um, I think I described it as a mix of American Honey meets uh, Apocalypse Now, which I stand by. Um, yeah, I was just really blown away. I can't wait to see it again in a theater when it hits the States. Um, it's just really, uh, really right up my alley. Okay. I'm intrigued by this now because as soon as it came into the MIF program, um, shout out to the guys up at Film Fight Club on 2SER Sydney, um, Glenn, who's at this festival, who I'll get on this podcast at some point, but um, also Chris Evans, who's on that show. 
absolutely hated this film when they saw it at, when he saw it at um, Sydney Film Fest and his just the way he talked about it made me really not want to see this film and then also Glenn and Virat who are also on that show like kind of piled on not mentally piled onto that but like added more to that kind of negative discourse about this film but all the uh, literally every other thing I've heard about this film has been overwhelmingly positive for sure yeah it's definitely like a mud drenched American honey so I could see how the aesthetic as well as like kind of the free flowing nature of the the narrative um would turn a lot of people off I know a lot of people were turned off by American Honey as well so I would still highly recommend it even to the people that I think would possibly hate it because I, I just feel like it's a powerful movie either way you you side on it it's an interesting movie regardless it's definitely not boring well that's one of the big complaints that I heard from my friends in Sydney was really? that it was incredibly boring but I will wow. even though I missed it at this Boo! Boo your friends and <laughs> Even though I missed this film uh, here, like I found out Mad Men Entertainment has distribution for it here in Australia, and potentially because it's a Colombian film, that it might get it might get a release in as part of the Latino Film Festival that happens every year and around no- November. So hopefully it'll check. I will get a chance to check it out there. But so that was the, so Monos is the high mark for you. What's at the other end of the spectrum? Uh, I think my least favorite was Alice, um, which interestingly enough. Everyone else I seem to talk about it with really liked it a lot. It won the Audience Award at South by Southwest, which I can kind of see because it really does play to the crowd and it knows how to make kind of a really, in my opinion, a really easy message and make it palatable. And yeah, I was just really uh, kind of floored by how I found it really amateurish and uh, really took some safe moves that I thought, you know, definitely made it a lot more simpler than than complex like that story should be. But uh, you saw it yourself and enjoyed I mean, it. I, I quite, I like this one a lot. Um, not, it's, it's in definitely in the lower half. But, I mean, I say that lower half, but I've seen 40, about 41 films of the festival. So even though lower half is still like a lot of the, I've only seen like a handful of duds this, uh, this year. I think only like I think there's only like five or five or six that I've given like on Letterbox like three stars or less. So and Alice, so I got uh, is about a three at the moment for me. But um, I I wasn't really wasn't expecting a whole lot from this one, and uh, it kind of took me by surprise a little bit. Like I was expecting just kind of a like fairly like convent. I mean it's it is fairly conventional, but I think in the way that um and I probably probably disagree with this, but in the way that like uh, Alice's character is portrayed and like especially like her, the arc that she goes through, I think there was actually like there was a, a potential for that to be very boring and just kind of you know by the numbers but i think the way that the film approaches that and how it uses and how like the it actual progresses there's actually i kind of disagree i think there is a little bit of complexity and there's a bit different there than i thought that was actually really interesting to watch unfold yeah i would definitely disagree i think it's definitely by the numbers the script kind of writes itself i guess her character is a little bit more dynamic um compared to kind of a stereotypical you know female empowerment story but even the character of her husband and her friend that she makes along the way like everything else is just kind of flat and one-dimensional for me um and i 
the ending I thought was just so corny. I don't know. There was just so much about it that just really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't flat out hate it, but uh, but it's definitely my least favorite of the festival, which I thought was surprisingly stronger than I had anticipated. There were a couple that I went in really excited for, like Manos and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But other than that, it was kind of more of a crapshoot for the rest of them, and I ended up really liking um, a lot of the festival so far. So... Well, you're one of the biggest um, uh, fans of the Darden brothers, and that was one of the fir- that was the first film you saw of theirs. A young Ahmed playing at this one, and not a fan. If you're the biggest Darden fan, but you didn't not like this one. Yeah, and I mean, I you know, I didn't really uh, love their last one, The Unknown Girl, either. So the writing was kind of on the wall there. Um, but yeah, I, I got to say, I was still pretty disappointed by how routine and it almost felt like kind of like uh Mikhail Hanukkah's uh happy end it felt like a greatest hits you know like a lot of the moments are stolen straight from previous films that they've done much better so yeah I just didn't really see the point of it being uh, a somewhat um like the touchy subject matter they didn't really seem to have anything of substance to say about it and uh, just generally was pretty disappointed I mean their trademark empathy is still there so there's still stuff to um, to enjoy about it but uh, overall yeah major disappointment for me right out of the gate their trademark, yeah it's, it's interesting their empathy is there but it's an empathetic movie about a character that is incredibly like unempath- like unempathetic or you, that, you have, that you have no empathy for right yeah it's um and i mean they kind of they kind of toy with that in the past with their characters being somewhat unlikable or at least complex and having like varying emotions that you you have to track throughout um yeah i thought some of the logic didn't really make sense and honestly the first act of it i would have just i could have imagined like 20 years ago they would have cut off the first 15 minutes entirely and it would have been a much more like enigmatic type of movie um so yeah just all around a a major disappointment but um hopefully they bounce back and try something new for once let's hope so uh george um so yeah you said like monos and um what was it um nightingale with the highest yeah so what would be your what's one that you really weren't a fan of then I mean, we want to talk about the good stuff we've seen, but there's also, we, we got to mention some of the bad stuff so that people, you know, just have a heads up about yeah. these ones. I'd probably say, like, Below was probably, like, the worst, I'm guessing. Yeah, that was an Australian film, wasn't it? Now, th- now tr- correct me if I'm wrong here, that's, like, a, a satire or, like, a yeah. uh, like a comedy about, like, a ref- like the refugee crisis or something? Yeah. It just, yeah, it was a comedy about the refugee crisis, and... It's, it, try, it tries to, like, um, be political and, like, comedic at the same time, but ne- neither of them, like, work together at all, and it just becomes, like, a mess. Right. Sounds like um, David Michaud's War Machine in, like, a really bad way. Yeah, I haven't seen... I don't know that movie, but um, it was messy, <laughs> if that's what you mean. Yeah, because I, was, I, was, I read the premise to that, and I was thinking, and it's just... Just especially Australian films here at MIF, they're always a gamble. Like and even this year, the ones that I've seen here are a mixed bag. But it's good that the Nightingale is, you know, your favourite, and that's an Australian film. That's great. Like the ones that I've seen here at MIF, like Buoyancy was fantastic. Um, Cerulean Blue was just really not that great, and I don't think I've seen too many other Australian films. The ones that are really good, and I've noticed at the Australian film festivals, are the documentaries. The Australian documentaries are always the strongest I found. Yeah, Australia seems to do 
do really well with documentaries as that um, Adam Goods one I've heard a lot of great things about so yeah um. but do you think it's um, like important that they support you know because I noticed there's a lot more Australian films here obviously playing do you think it's important that they kind of you know gear the festival more towards a local film community does that to like show their support well, I don't know. It's interesting that you say, I think because it's an international film festival, to an extent, no, because like this is one that, because if it was just Australian films, I would guarantee you it wouldn't get as big of an audience as it does. But I think do think it's important and I do, I, and it's great that the Melbourne Film Festival has like the premiere fund, which is, you know, it helps fund a certain number of films that to get to play at the festival and then some of them may or may not get releases afterwards. Like there was one that I saw that was part of the premiere fund last year, which I believe still has not got a release. But then there are others that have done really well and have gone to have like, you know, real, that have become really big films. Like, I don't know if you saw, there was one a few years ago called These Final Hours, which was like an apocalypse film and it was really good and it um, launched the career of um, Angari Rice as well. So that's, that was really great. But um, yeah, I do think that that needs to happen, but uh, I think there's a there's a good there's a big there's a good enough selection of Australian not not selection but there's a good number of Australian films at this festival. Uh, I wish some like there was uh, like more consistent quality, but beggars can't be choosers, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's the nature of it. Is you know, because I, I noticed that there were a lot more Australian films on the list than any obviously American festival, but even more than I anticipated for an international film festival in Australia. But like you said, I, I think it is important that they support local artists and kind of give a boost to, you know, the careers of, of up and rising, you know, Australian filmmakers. But at the same time, maybe uh, maybe their selection of on the quality might be a little bit more lax than it would be for like a different country. You know, did you catch any Australian films at the festival? Alice is technically one because it's an Australian director, even though it was set and shot in France with French actors. What, have you have you checked out any or any any documentaries? We we're just mentioning that. Um, so no, I guess it makes sense, or it's kind of ironic that my only Australian film I saw here I quite disliked and was my least favorite. But I'm sure if I had seen others, and I've heard great things about some others that weren't playing while I was here, um, or that I unfortunately had to miss. Um, Documentary-wise, the only one I think I saw was The Grand Bazaar, which I don't even know if you could classify it as a documentary. I don't. I think it really defies classification entirely. It's more of a, an experimental art film, kind of an endurance test of sorts, especially after a 26-hour uh, flight and staying up for over 32 hours. I was just out of my mind, and the movie made me feel like I was slowly going insane. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, because that one was only like an hour long too, and it was like this. Ex yeah, it felt like uh, it felt like quite a bit longer. I liked it um, for what it was, but yeah, I don't think I would watch it again, and I can't say that I would recommend it to uh, anyone who's not into like very strange uh, experimental art films. Interesting. Um, uh, I wish I could. I wish I had caught that. Even though, but again, like I've seen 40 films. As much as I'd like to, I'd love to see everything, but it's just, it's physically impossible. It is physically impossible. But you, you, you know, gave up a lot to come here. Yeah, a lot, a lot of your time, and I'm guessing your two weeks a year to come here as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I get, I get a little bit, I get a couple extra days, so I think I'm going to try to take off a day and uh, go up with Henry to uh, the New York Film Festival, and there's another local film festival near me that I'm excited about, so I might take a day off for there. But yeah, this was my major vacation of the year instead of going to TIFF. Okay. 
was it worth it? For sure, absolutely. Not only for the you know the few films that I ended up really loving, um, but just for the city and seeing a country that I probably never would have gone to before, you know before, um, and meeting all these incredible people that I now know in real life and not just through Twitter. So definitely, will you come back at some point? Ah, to, to be determined, I suppose. Time will tell. You guys got to come to the states first. We should. Uh, I would. I would love to, but um, I need. Yeah. Uh, to get something sorted before that. For sure. Yeah. No, I get that. But yeah, you've always got a couch to crash on if any of y'all come to DC for sure. And you mentioned Twitter there. For some, if for whatever reason, I'll start with George. Where can people follow you if they're not following you on Twitter already? George underscore Lakos. That's that's what that's me. Yeah, you go follow that, and everyone's following Kern. But if you're not, where are you? Kern etc. Spelled out. That's my at. So you can feel free to unfollow me now that you've heard my insane, sleep-deprived, raspy voice. You, you you jumped out of depth of Dick Long last night for. Yeah, I was sick. I've been sick the past couple of days, but I'm feeling a lot better today. Of course, on my final day, I get to uh, actually enjoy the tail end of my trip. So. And the sun's out for once too. Yeah, it's beautiful today. Yeah, I'm loving it. I actually. You know, it's it's great weather. Finally, the day I fly out, of course. All right, thanks for coming on, Ken. It's a pleasure to be with you here in Melbourne while you're here. Thanks for coming on too, George. I'm uh, happy to be here. I loved it. Thank you very much. Yeah, and you listen to it. Yeah, you better. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I I I listen to pretty much all of them, so I'm. Sure Aww. Yep. All right. Thank you, guys. Right, so we're up here at uh, Hoyt's Melbourne Central in the lovely little area where um, I, same interview where I, area where I interviewed Ashley, but um, this, there's nothing on the screen, so we're not going to be introdu- interrupted by trailers this time. Hopefully, I'm here with someone who I did this kind of thing with last year, but um, didn't really work out because those episodes have never went to wear. But I'm finally here with a Sydney film critic and uh, one third of the Film Fight Club pod, uh, podcast or radio show on 2SER Sydney, Glenn Falkenstein. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Sean, it's great to be here. Great to be in Melbourne. I just It's very nice here and so many friends and so many movies. There's a lot of movies. Um, yeah, how many have you seen so far in the festival? Because you've been here since uh, mon- Monday or Sunday, so you've been here for a, about, a, about a week now. I've been here since Monday. I've seen, oh, God, a good eight movies. Um, if you count the ones from the Sydney Film Festival and a couple of others, then we're probably closer to the 45 mark. Uh, but, yeah, I'm enjoying myself. Seeing a lot of new ones here, some that premiered at MIF, some... I just flew under the radar elsewhere, and uh, yeah, I'm having a really good week. A very eclectic, very different mix, and a lot of based on recommendations, and ones I've been otherwise very keen for. So what's one that you you said based on recommendations there? What's one that you went into based on a recommendation that you either was like, okay, like this person was right, like this was very much well earned, or you saw it, it's like, what the hell were they thinking? Like, has there been a recommendation that's been very good or very bad that you've seen out of the film you've seen at MIF so far? Well, I saw one today called Machine, which was recommended to me. Their first screening happened yesterday. And there's a documentary by some Australian filmmakers and American filmmakers about the advents of artificial intelligence and its consequences. And I found this quite interesting. It had a lot of the black mirror imagery which people will be able to relate to. Certainly, there'll be uh, people who've seen episodes like Be Right Back and Metalhead will recognize that, oh, wait a minute, these things actually exist. And it's a little terrifying. That sounds creepy. Like, Be Right Back is the uh, one of the few Black Mirror episodes I've actually seen. And, yeah, just you saying that, yeah, woof, that this kind of stuff actually already exists. 
and this documentary goes into it in detail in some detail, like the fact that that tech actually this is amazing. Um, they talk a bit about um, the robotics industry and some of the implications there. I, having said that, and there was a beautiful imagery in the film, very Terence Malicky, just big colours, explosions everywhere, um, to simulate the passage of time and situate our current technological advancement in the broad breadth of um, human civilization and the, I guess the galaxy, and the universe itself. The problem I had was I wish it had been more technical. I wish it had been more detailed. This is a film that had the opportunity to go into the real minutiae of the consequences of technological advancement, how it could affect us, how it has affected us, and it was very broad, and the issues it raises are much more timeless than could have been done by something that was uh, very of the now. Granted, the material in this film could have been out of date by the time the film gets released, or even months after someone has seen it, but I wouldn't mind it as a time capsule of what technological advancements are to a point if it was uh, very technical as to some greater consequences but it was very broad in its scope so yes it's accessible in many ways but I also feel it could have been much more um, detailed and therefore much more engaging. You were saying how this film might not have a might, might not have a very long half-life oh and the trailers have started fantastic I oh, can't avoid this but uh, and it's lost my train of thought thanks very much um so, but just, okay, I've remembered what I was going to say now, but I've been interrupted by the trailers that we're going to have to scream over for the next, I guess, like 20 minutes or so. But do you think, based on this, like saying how it might age quite quickly, do you think it might still get a release? I think it will get a release. I think it should get a release. It's a, it still is an engaging film. I think it will have a longer run life. Uh, purely by virtue of the fact that the messages in it are more universal and if they had to focus a particular place and time. I, having said that, I think that it could have been more of a balance. Like it could have focused on what are the issues of today, right now, as opposed to what are the broad, more over the broad philosophical questions that are facing, not just now, but 10 years in the past and 10 to 20 years in the future. Okay, I might just pause now. Okay, the fine folks here at uh, Hoyt's Melbourne Central have turned the volume down on the trailers, so we can talk again, Glenn. Yeah, it's great. Um, I can hear myself and hear you. <laughs> it's fantastic, isn't it? So what else have you seen that was uh, quite strong? Well, I saw one last night called The Death of Dick Long from the one of the filmmakers from one of my very favourite films of the past 10 years, Swiss Army Man. And this was about... We don't really, you can't really describe this in any great detail. It's set in Alabama and it's about two men and we see um, something happen to an acquaintance of theirs at the beginning of the film, we're not quite sure. And named Richard Long, the titular Richard Long. Named Richard Long. And we uh, struggle to find out throughout this movie, as do many others in the small town, including the police, what has happened to Dick Long. And it's a weird tonal mashup. There's dramatic elements, there's comedic elements, and strangely, it is about this Alabama community, and the filmmakers could very easily have put them up for mock and ridicule, but it doesn't. They're very pathetic characters, and I'm going to... But it doesn't... Um, just absolutely satirize or treat them as caricatures which I appreciated. There's a great twist about halfway through which I adored. A lot of people are going to find this off-putting or it will derail the film for them. I actually think it endeared it more than anything else that had transpired in the first half and while it was a mellow film experience in many ways I couldn't, wouldn't write home about it. I wouldn't have been blown away. Um, especially as things progressed the latter half I quite enjoyed myself. I am one of the people that is just kind of like, eh, about this film. 
Because you mentioned just before when saying in, in saying what you were just going on about there in that uh, this twist, like it'll kind of make, not necessarily make or break the film for them, but it could be one that really sours the audience on, on it. I wouldn't say I was necessarily soured, but I was just kind of like, oh, okay, it's this sort of movie. Okay. And, and you're talking about like the tonal and like the tonal and like kind of not necessarily like genre shifts that the film does. Like, I don't think it quite sticks the landing on many of them. I feel it went for a lot of dark humor, which a lot of the performers were more geared towards a traditional drama. So you had a lot of actors who were at cross purposes and had very different approaches to this movie. And for and yet I appreciate that dark humor can be subtle, but it needed moments to ground it as a comedy because first and foremost, this is a comedy. The reveal will be, well, shocking, will be comedic for some, but for others, if, if that's not your sort of humor, then you will not relish sitting through the second half of this yeah. film at all. I, I like the twist because it's something I've never seen before and it cha- it just shifted the entire genre of the film. But what I appreciated about it was that it didn't change genre. It just revealed what the film was actually about. Um, the revelation, as much as it is maybe off-putting, made perfect sense in the context that they had set up thus far. I think this film, like prior to the twist, which, as I said, like kind of just... I, not yeah, as I said, it doesn't really derail the film for me, but like it kind of really lost me a little bit. But when this film works as just like a basic like kind of dumb criminal comedy, and, and when I say dumb criminal, I mean like p- people that do a crime that either they don't know like that they either did it on purpose and don't know how to cover it up, or just do a really stupid crime. Like similar to like this film has already been compared to like a white trash Fargo, which is I believe what the program guy described it as. Yeah, there's elements of Logan Lucky therein. Yeah. Uh, Another particular documentary from the mid-2000s, which I won't suggest because that would spoil the ending, but yes. Yeah, um, there's a few things about this. Look, it's, I noticed at the end credits that Alabama Film Office was spelt with two L's in film, and you could look at this in a few ways. Like You could look at it as a, as a mistake, but if it wasn't a mistake, I think it probably was, but if you look at it, it wasn't a mistake. Um, if, it kind of elucidates on the philosophy of this film. It's either making fun of the people in this area or is making fun of the people who would think that this is deliberate. And it's... I think many people would go into this looking to laugh at the characters and you can laugh at them in some respects, but you don't laugh at them because... You laugh at them because they're so hapless for no other reason. And there's something in the same way that um, the Driver and Tatum's characters were in Logan Lucky in the same way that we saw Ray Fine's character in the Grand Budapest Hotel to include an example on the other end of the scale, it's very entertaining. And I that certainly maintained the um, interest in the film for me throughout. I think for a lot of people. It didn't maintain my interest like throughout the whole thing, but definitely for that for, for the first part before the, the twist comes. But one film I really want to talk to you about because you saw this one at Sydney Film Festival and that I was, I, I wasn't like too, like didn't hear too much about it, but then uh, swapped into it almost uh, because of like timed worked out better. But one, uh, a Moroccan film called The Unknown Saint. Now this film is kind of fascinating and 
in the fact that the content of the film itself, but why it's been so under the radar this festival. So yeah, the basic setup for this film is uh, a man, it opens with a man who has a bag and he climbs up to the top of a hill to bury it and just before, and, and like hides it in like the form of a grave. And right after he does this, he's captured by police. And, you, and then the next thing we see, it's been some years later, this man has been released from jail. He goes, he goes to this hill to claim his money, only to find that uh, people from a nearby village have uh, erected a monument for what has been called the Monument for the Unknown Saint and have like built their village around it. And it's a very funny but yet thoughtful like uh, satire on a religion that I think worked really well and is, as I said, the best film of the festival that no one is talking about. I really enjoyed this. It was a late edition from <coughs> Cannes and for the Sydney Film Festival. I would not know much about it. I went on purely on the strength of the plot, which you described. I love how it's very similar to a 1990s film called Blue Streak with Martin Lawrence, which I don't know if a lot of people have seen. Uh, this is a lot better, but it's the same basic plot. That this guy has to go throughout this village and try to get his loot back. I, a similar um, comment as to the Death of Dick Long, I enjoyed that the, char- the characters were pathetic but they weren't put up for ridicule, and I appreciated that. It was, the whole heist, scheme to get it back, had a very pinky in the brain-esque character where it was always, do we go today, what do we do here, and just kind of um, yeah. upending themselves. And But I disagree with you on point. I don't think it's actually a satire of religion. I actually think it's kind of a sensitive look at how people view religion, how people respond to religion, and what religion means in people's lives. It's more send up for me in a satire on people who would look to exploit that or not take it seriously or at least not heed whether you believe in religion or not the significance that it has in the lives of others because certainly um, the people who do that in this film don't uh, don't go through the sorts of uh, shenanigans go through the sorts of shenanigans that you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, visit upon yourself I also think just obviously no spoilers but I think the ending of this film is absolutely fantastic as well like I think everything comes together so well in terms of like in ways that are really satisfying, but also in the way that, uh, especially the the final shots and how it ends is just absolutely stunning. Oh, the ending's great. Um, the ending is a great bit of satire, and uh, I don't think it could have neatly been wrapped up in any other way that would have been so satisfying. Um, another thing I loved about this, I really enjoy films or series that where the environment and the town as a character, there's a very small town, and I feel we get to know all the characters and the nature of this town so well in like a star's hollow sense where everything around you you're really aware of um the everything that goes on here and it makes it that much more interesting when you get to know each character and i'm, I'm really glad that it didn't just focus on like this guy that's coming to the town to get his loot back like it it has it focuses on the guy that guards the thing at night and like the, and his dog and it also follows like the doctor that's just came into town and like a guy from a vill- a, a guy that's in the that lives in the village with his father who's like one of the only people that are still there, which was kind of reminded me a little bit of a film I saw earlier in the a documentary that I saw earlier in the festival, Honeyland, reminded me a little bit of that too. But yeah, I just found out like doing, looking at it and introducing all these characters made for an absolutely fascinating and much more thematically rich film. Oh, to convey the hilarity of it, when I mean the shrine, it's not this big place. It's this really lo-fi, like small house, which shouldn't be technically at all hard to break into but they just keep coming up on all these terrible barriers uh, which tells us more and more about the individuals who 
care about the spot and the people in the town. And um, the father-son bit, the doctor was hilarious. Um, they, they, they all were. It was, it was, they were. All the characters were really well drawn. Yeah, just getting the, the robbers or the people just trying to get their, their money back, just getting thwarted in the most ridiculous ways possible. And, oh, it's so good. Yeah, very Tom and Jerry in a way. You know, it's coming back and itchy and scratchy just almost, but not quite. I'd really recommend this one. It was almost like, is this joke, like, how long is this going to go on for? Like, are they going to get to the point where this joke becomes stale or like, but it, it doesn't. Like, they, they, managed, they managed to find new and, comp- and even more ridiculous ways for them to, you know, yeah, be foiled. This is one that you could pretty much set in a lot of countries and a lot of places, very low budget, but requires um, some particular creativity in uh, just ensuring that the premise and the things that transpire around and stick the landing, and it does. So I really appreciated this movie. I'm I'm glad I saw. I would rec- I, I go, if, go, if you have a chance, go out catch it because how often do you get a chance to see Moroccan cinema? And there aren't a lot of Moroccan films that make it out here. And this is such a great one. No, this is a great one. And I saw one that was really not good last year called Sophia. So to see a good Moroccan film was absolutely excellent. Yeah, The Unknown Saint. Yeah, it's a fascinating look into religion and like why people, you know, what what attracts people to religion. It's a fascinating look. But we are about to go head off to. One of my fi- one of the final films I'm going to catch at Myth because my count is currently at 42, and I am dead. I'm almost dead. Like I'm not. Like, I'm coming to you beyond the grave. This is Sean's ghost speaking. Like Sean, it, what's that line from that Taylor Swift? Sean, you want to talk to you want to talk to Sean? He's not here. He's dead. Whatever oh, it is, uh, I can't. Yeah, it's from uh, Repu- the Reputation album. I'm sorry, you can't catch the old Taylor is is dead. Yeah, I I for, 42. Like 42 is my record for any festival. I saw 42 at the last City Film Festival and you're still going. You've still got a couple of days left. I've got two sessions and one screener still to watch. Yeah, if you're watching, I, I don't think a lot of you would have seen Sean, but Sean's basically turned into a film. It's, um, yeah, dude, you're, it, it's, it's a funny experience. I've turned into a Cronenberg monstrosity. Like, I just, I'm not human anymore. Look, the great thing about Myth is, and I exclude SFF in that, that you can immerse yourself in the environment, you can watch dozens of films in a period, run between... You live a very different lifestyle. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this lifestyle. Absolutely not. It will destroy you. But you'll meet a lot of good people because you'll see the same crowd going back and forth to screenings. Um, Some of them are online and are amazing commentators. And if you see people like going back... Film film watching can be... uh, a, a solo experience but it shouldn't be so reach out people at the festival are really friendly and they're just keen they're probably watching a lot of the same films as you are and they're keen to hear what you think and I'm sure you'd love to hear what they think too it's a great environment exactly yeah hit us up on Twitter if you're if you're at MIF or SFF hit us up on Twitter see a movie with us yeah yeah Look, seriously like, just reach out where like Ackland Falkenstein um, or yeah any of, the, any of the critics out there they're, people are just want to talk about movies and how often like we've been going out every night just chatting for hours about yeah. different films we've seen and uh, we're never going to do this. It's a, it's a, it's our Christmas. It's a wonderful time of year, and I'm sorry that my myth experience is coming to a close tomorrow. It's been a pretty glorious week, and it's, I, and just hanging around Melbourne and having the cinemas so close and compact. Unlike Sydney. Look, I, I do enjoy running out to the Ritz and, and the Orpheum, and because those are gorgeous cinemas, and you're seeing different parts of the city. But while I'm here, it is nice to know that I could just literally. Oh, I got the cinema wrong. That's okay. Just run to the capital and get there, which is where we're going next for one that I probably is my most anticipated of my festival, Little Monsters, because I adore the pit in the Ongo, and it's got a, it's a wonderful premise, and it's filmed in Australia. So the basic premise of this film is Lupita Nyong'o is a preschool teacher taking her kids out on, a, on like a field trip or an excursion 
and the zombie apocalypse happens. Now I'm kind of I'm looking forward to this film mainly because of the director because this film this film sounds like it's going to be like a terrible mashup of genres like like as soon as I saw the as soon as I saw like the premise of this like I, even though I didn't see it because you warned me not to um, I was getting like a big Anna and the Apocalypse vibe from this and the Apocalypse you you, you brought on <laughs> horrifying feelings oh my god not this again no we, this this looks. Quite fun. I, I, like, I like that Australia is our destination where it's cheap enough to film, and we can double for a lot of other countries that yeah. people will film here and spend time here on a lot of mid-range productions with uh, with which which are shot within quite a short time frame. Ones like this, and she's done this straight off us, which I wasn't the biggest fan of. I, I didn't like us either. I'd say if you liked us, go see Parasite. I'd say go see Parasite anyway. But much better film that deals with the exact same themes. A lot better exponentially better having said this she is a superb actress i very much liked her other projects and i'm keen for this one it's great i always try to close out a festival on a high i closed out um, city film festival portrait of a lady on fire and i'm closing this one out on this one and i'm i don't think i'm gonna regret my decision at all and yeah as i said it's gonna be a crazy mashup that might on paper probably won't work but i have faith in director abe forsyth whose previous film even though you i i told you the premise of this film earlier and you kind of scoffed at it uh down under which i've actually talked about on one of the very first episodes of this show in which yeah for um, down under for people who hadn't seen it it's a comedy film about that centered around the cronulla riots which sounds awful and i was i was ready to hate it when i first saw it but I was kind of surprisingly moved by it. it. It's also genuinely, genuinely funny. Like, if you want to see, like, really biting, really, like, provocative satire, Down Under is definitely it. And I don't, while, I don't think, um, while I don't think Little Monsters is going to operate on any kind of that level, I just think, like, the handling of tone and genre that Little Monsters has, I think he'll, he can pull off. Well, I'm prepared to give it a shot. Um, I haven't seen a lot of his other work. Everyone's going to this for good reason. I know it was the Myth Centerpiece Gala, and it's got quite decent reviews out of that. Um, Myth have done well to select uh, their program this year. It's a lot of uh, individual flicks that are very high profile. Certainly, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had its Australian premiere here, and a lot of the great ones from Sydney came down. I mentioned Portrait of Lady on Fire a second ago, Dirty God, uh, which is exceptional, which people should seek out given the opportunity. And I know the Dead Don't Die is playing tonight. I can't recommend that one as strongly. I think Sean, you might. I liked it. Yeah, no, I, I like Tilda Swinton or uh, whatever. She had a very... Zelda Winston. Zelda Winston, God, yeah. I l- enjoyed her. I enjoyed a couple of Iggy Pop jokes. A little too uh, self-reflexive and fourth wall breaking. I honestly think Jim Jarmusch got all his friends together and just said, we want to make a zombie film. And uh, That's why I like it, Glenn. It's not trying to be anything else. But what do the zombies mean? You know, zombies have to say something. They have to be instructive or include some... You know, this is this is where we are going as a society. Sometimes zombies are just zombies. But I've seen so many films like that. And with... Be, you know, B-horror exists. It does, but not with Jim Jarmusch and the cast of A-list. As I said, Bill Murray, Adam Driver, Tilda Swinton, Iggy Pop, several other... And uh, the new Elvis. The new Elvis is in this movie. You could have, you, you had the talent and resources to make not a B movie, but a much greater, high concept, more interesting film with better production values, and you did not. New Elvis. Yeah, uh, what's his name? Austin uh, Austin Butler, who is in Once Upon a Time in the West. So Once Upon a Time Hollywood, excuse me, is one of the three hipsters in The Dead Don't Die. Oh, 
I thought you were saying that he was cast as Elvis in that new Baz Luhrmann biopic that he's doing. That's what I mean, yeah. No. Oh, really? Yeah, so the guy, oh. that's Austin Butler. So he's, he's that a great one, Dead Don't Die, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and now the new Elvis movie. But yeah, he, he, haven't so he, he doesn't play Elvis in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No, no, he plays Elvis in the new Baz Luhrmann film. Right. He plays one of the Manson disciples in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> and in Dead Don't Die, he plays, um, well, alongside, is it Selena Gomez? Yes. Yeah, one of, one of the three hipsters. She was quite good. Uh, who you, you know, there's three hipsters you just can't wait to get their zombie heavy you know ends in some manner or other oh, so Bill Murray has done zombie fare before in much better form uh, he knows he, he knows what the zombie genre is all about and uh, I'm much more keen for Zombieland 2 than I am for any rewatch of the Don't Die I'm not really keen that, that trailer for Zombieland 2 was quite bad oh you're the one that started off as a uh, you know high class art Film. We were listening to all these, you know, great performances, and, and then we're going into Zombieland territory. Yeah, I'm keen. Jesse Eisenberg has always uh, delivered. Emma Stone, obviously. Uh, Breslin, going back. All, all four of those are Academy Award, at the very least, Academy Award nominees now. How crazy is that? It's shocking that Woody Harrelson has not won an Academy Award to date. He's a brilliant actor. Four nominations, I think he's got. So. He, he's... His time has come. Uh, he, I mean, he started off with Cheers and then it's just spiraled into all these amazing... I would like to see him get his juice. Uh, I, th- I think he's still seen him in many quarters of Hollywood um, in his you know, Woody role as in Woody in Cheers, but he's gone so far beyond that and uh, his time has come. Cool. And you mentioned Twitter earlier. What was that ad again if people want to find Glenn? Because, Glenn, you are a fascinating person to follow on Twitter and always have great stuff and you've also got links to stuff from film like for Film Fight Club and Festivus and, and all the other great stuff you do and Falcon Screen as well so plug away my friend oh yeah thank you that's very kind um, so yeah I'm at Glenn Falkenstein uh, Gillian F-A-L-K E-N-S-T-I-N follow me uh, tweet at me if you want us to fight about something on Film Fight Club we're happy to pick a fight with you and he hates drive start there please I would gladly fight about drive with anyone that is oh so and then he went from that to the Neon Demon which was just which I saw here he had only God Forgives in between that Oh, oh, I saw that. I saw that in the day off. I was, my flight was delayed in Brisbane. I needed to kill a few hours, and I saw only God forgives. God help me. Neon Demon, though, just brilliant filmmaking. I would watch that again and again. Uh, his other stuff, I, Bronson accepting, I can, you know, take, 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 not even. I, I, can, I can just leave. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, follow me, and uh, it's been great being on the show and chatting all things myth, and I'm, yeah, keen to catch, catch at least one more movie. Let's go to Little Monsters right now, and I don't know. This might be the end of it. I don't know if I'll record. I don't know if I'll record anything with anyone else. So, I guess whoever you hear next is—it's going to be me, definitely. But I don't know who I'll be with. And that brings this episode of another bloody movie podcast to a close. A big thank you for everybody out there listening, and I extend that very big thank you to Ashley, to Toby, to George, to the other George, to Kern and to Glenn for taking their time out of a very busy and a very hectic film festival to chat about movies. It was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for coming on. And I will also extend that thank you to everybody else who I hung out with at the festival, saw movies with, who either didn't want to be recorded on the podcast or I just did not get a chance to record with them. So I'm probably going to forget some names here, but a big thank you to Emily, Pamela, Chris, Bede, Adam, Felix, Virat, and of course, my wonderful co-host, Eric Tischer. 
Thank you for making the Melbourne International Film Festival 2019 the best time I have had at MIF and the best MIF I have been to since moving to Melbourne. You guys made this festival more fun and more amazing than I could ever imagine it being. So thank you very, very much. And if you're a first-time listener of another bloody movie podcast, maybe you are listening in because of one of my guests that I, that I talked to on this episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a subscribe. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or on Apple Podcasts or just whichever podcast provider you use. Just search for another bloody movie podcast and hit that subscribe button. As for our social media, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at ABMoviePodcast or you can find us on Instagram at Another Bloody Movie Pod. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter, both at SeanHub underscore. That is S-E-A-N-H-U-B underscore. And you can also find me on Letterboxd, letterboxd.com forward slash Sean Coates. If you want to see very, very brief thoughts and ratings for every single film that I saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival, you can head to my letterbox and find me there. Letterbox.com forward slash Sean Coates. Go see what I thought of every single film because I will probably not write mini reviews for every single film that I saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival because that is just way too much. And speaking of the mini reviews, my MIF coverage rolls on over at moviebabblereviews.com. I have two collections of mini reviews up, ready for you to read, and I have plenty more coming. Even though the fifth festival is well and truly over, I will be covering MIF long after it is finished over at moviebabblereviews.com in the form of mini reviews that are about 300 words long about about a number of films that I saw at the festival. I already have mini reviews for films such as Matthias and Maxime, for uh, Vivarium, for... Oh, God, what else have I reviewed? I have reviewed um, Young Ahmed, Baccarat, Sorry We Missed You... So you can go check that out over at moviebabblereviews.com. And if you want more MIF coverage here on Another Bloody Movie podcast, check out my previous episode that I recorded with my good mate Matthew Corigliano talking about what was still the best film of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is the Adam Goods documentary, The Australian Dream. It was the opening night film of the Melbourne International Film Festival. And as of today, August 22nd, it is now out nationally in Australian cinemas. So please Go see this. Um, Matt and I had a 35-minute discussion about the, the documentary and also the other Adam Goods documentary, The Final Quarter, and how both of these films kind of tackle and present the Adam Goods story in different and interesting ways and just kind of had a discussion about the saga and really great episode that I'm really proud of. So please listen to that and also go check out The, uh, the Australian Dream, which is in cinemas from today. It's a great documentary. Please go check it out. But until then... I'm still really worn down by MIF. It's still five days after the festival has ended and I'm just, I'm still feeling, I'm still feeling the fatigue, but it was worth it. It absolutely was worth it. So thank you very much for listening and I will see you later. Bye-bye.